Matt Laswitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on the big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, how are you this evening? I'm doing okay. Let me ask you this. In light of one particular character we're going to talk about tonight, is there ever a character or has there ever been a character in fiction where you're like, you know, this guy was better with some mystique about him. I have learned too much. This character has, has gone astray. Numerous comic books are rife with characters who had mysterious backgrounds who have been backgrounded to death. I think Wolverine is the greatest example of that. But within the Bat family, I don't like a version of the Joker where the Joker's backstory is too cut and dry. I think we've discussed that in the past. Although the, the best example I can think of is actually a character outside of comics. Hannibal Lecter. Ooh, yeah. Hannibal Rising, complete waste of space. You don't did not need all of this origin. And it was origin that contradicted stuff that had been established in the earlier books, that he didn't have this tragic backstory. He was just a sociopath. And we are firmly of the position that you can just stop after uh, Manhunter. Don't need anything else. I, I like Silence of the Lambs, but I think Manhunter Manhunter is my favorite lector on film, leaps and bounds. But I think Silence is a very good film. But anything beyond that, Hannibal, Hannibal Rising, Red Dragon, nope. Uh, no, no. You know, this is it's not exactly the the same thing we're gonna talk about tonight, but because I, I think tonight in what I presume is our main story, we have we have a villain who has shifted from what he originally was, which to my mind is more like uh, the change from Space Seed to Wrath of Khan, Khan. Wrath of Khan, Khan, you know, Ricardo Montalban chews up the scenery. He's just got this animal magnetism. He's a great character. Space Seed Khan is a fascinating manipulator, is just cunning and charming and just a, a very different character. So I think Khan has more in line with, with what we're going to talk about tonight. And perhaps the question I asked you is basically, uh, what's a good example of Darth Vader uh, and learning too much about him? What you're talking about is what I've seen described as Flandersization. Ah, where it takes yes. one element of a character of a more well-rounded character and then starts to define that character first by that one element and then takes that one element and ramps it up to 15. The trope, of course, comes from Ned Flanders, who started out as just the nice guy neighbor next door who happened to be a guy who went to church and then after a while, it's now Ned Flanders is a Christian fundamentalist right-wing whack job who lives next door and 
believes that the world is 5,000 years old and people rode dinosaurs. But he's also left-handed. Yeah. As the Joker says of boss Carl Grissom in the Batman 89, he was a thief and a murderer. But on the other hand, he had a tremendous singing voice. But yeah, I uh, I will always favor Space Seed over Wrath of Khan in terms of giving a more complex and interesting character. And while not a single character, the Borg are much more fascinating in Q-Who and Best of Both Worlds. The more deeply you get into the Borg, the more Mishigas they surround the Borg with, the less intimidating they are. Uh, and now uh, I, f- I forget did you see picard season two not yet about to start uh, just finished uh, disco a couple days ago starting picard this weekend uh who the fuck can say where the borg is now we do some interesting things in season two i'm not saying that all, not all of it is interesting i i love first contact love first contact and the idea of a borg queen i think is good but there's two ways to look at the borg queen i find either the borg queen is the controlling intelligence and there is this central single being or the borg queen is the voice of the collective and i i've always taken the borg queen as the latter that the collective in the same way that they needed locutus to speak to the federation the Borg know that when they are dealing with individualized entities and have to speak to them, being them as a, you know, God voice doesn't work. They need a face. So the Borg queen is the voice of the collective. She is not an individual entity herself. Have you and I broached my, my central confusing point with first contact? I don't believe so. Okay. So Picard in first contact, Dude, we've, the line must be drawn here. You know, oh, the, wait, I think we have, but continue now that I. Think. Yes. Yes. Again, he is militaristic. He is antagonistic. He is angry. And yet in I Borg, which is presumably just a couple of years before that, he declines to commit Borg genocide. And I just I wish the film had just given us a little line like a few years ago. I had the opportunity to exterminate the Borg and every day since then, every death, every assimilation has been on me. I can't live with that anymore. Because I think I said what I wish we had seen is since we know that that Borg cube is now over earth, that there was another Wolf 359 along the way. The Borg have committed genocide at colonies along the way. So now Picard has this extra weight of guilt. One line would have given Picard more of a reason why he's suddenly stampy, screamy Picard. But, yeah. A, a, a Picard angry enough to call Worf a coward. And to grab a Tommy gun and go, ah! Go, Patrick Stewart. Patrick Stewart commits. He always commits. God bless him. Uh, again, uh, certainly the best of the Next Generation movies, but it does have its issues. It does. But... I mean, it is leaps and bounds above any of the other Next Generation movies. Oh, clearly. So hard. It's 13 movies, 6 TOS, 4 TNG, and 3 Kelvin. Uh Uh-huh. 
It's it's top half. Yeah. Yeah, it, it falls above the median line there, I would definitely say. But again, back us on Patreon. We are nine patrons away from doing a whole monstrously long episode where we rank all 13 of those films. Get get your friends to sign up. Sign up your friends, you know? Dollar a month. Dollar a month. And this will be released to all backers. This is not for your $5 and up backers who get all of the other bonus content. This is for all backers once we hit 20. And on the bonus episodes, we hang hog. That wag. <laughs> uh, I, I still believe there needs... Someday we will do the Bat Chat After Dark bonus episodes where we review the Batman porn parodies. But what we that that's got to be a hundred backers, <laughs> because we'll need that amount of money to clear all the viruses off our computers after we have to watch <laughs> the Batman porn parodies. But hey, Matt, that's what the public library is for. I don't know what your problem is. The VPNs are for <laughs> IT guy. But okay, this has been our usual beginning of the episode BS, and now we're we're getting into a. A regular episode, which I don't know about you, but it feels nice after Batman Eternal. It feels nice to be back into the groove of three stories in a week. Yeah. And specifically this week, we are celebrating the 40th anniversary of the first appearance of the second Robin, Jason Todd. How does it feel to be old, Matt? Uh, Yeah, exactly. I was having a conversation with friend of the show, my longtime best friend, co-host of my other podcast, Dan Grote, on Monday, and was saying, you know, 30th anniversary of Jason Todd. He's like, you mean 40th? I'm like, yes, but I keep getting it wrong because I don't want to admit to myself that Jason Todd has been around for 40 years because that makes me old. Ah, just think in 10 years, it'll be the 50th anniversary. I feel a twitch coming on. (laughs) so we will be starting with a story which has no title on its own but i am calling enter jason todd and killer croc this is batman volume one issues 357 to 359 and detective comics volume one 524 to 526 the writer is jerry conway with pencils by don newton Kurt Swan and Dan Jurgens, inks by Alfredo Alcala, Dick Giordano, and Rodan Rodriguez, colors by Adrian Roy, letters by Ben Oda and Todd Klein, and edited by Len Wein and Nicola Cutie. Cover dates are March to May of 1983. A new threat has taken over Gotham's mobs, the wily and monstrous Killer Croc. Batman must face down this menace, one who seems to outmatch the Dark Knight, while a circus comes to town bringing with it a family of acrobats, the Flying Todds, whose youngest member, Jason, will meet a familiar fate. For those of you out there who don't know the pre-crisis bits about Jason Todd, Jason Todd started out as basically Dick Grayson. Part D. Yeah. Jason is a red-haired Dick Grayson. He has almost the same origin except that it's croc who's responsible for the death of his family instead of tony zuko and they don't die at the circus yes it's very strange dan and i hosted a panel at a con once where jerry conway was on the panel and i'd wanted to ask him about that but the minute i started talking about jason todd he 
started talking about how you know he technically wasn't the creator of Jason Todd because he doesn't get creator credit because he's a derivative character and it became a whole discussion about creator's rights. So I never got to ask him how much of that came from editorial where it was like, yeah, we just want you to basically use the same origin and just make some tinkers and how much of it was him just deciding that was the way to go. So, so he, he literally does not get credit for Jason Todd because he's a copy of Dick Grayson. He doesn't get residuals. You'll, you'll see him created by Jerry Conway and Don Newton, I guess in the same way that he gets residuals when they use the ronnie raymond martin stein version of firestorm but when it's one of them merging with somebody else jason rush or another character it's a derivative character but it's not his character so he doesn't get residuals on that it's basically corporations just finding ways to keep money Haha, Watchmen, still in print. Yep. So here we have the introduction of Jason and the introduction of Croc. Croc is a much bigger part of this story than Jason. Yes. Really doesn't get much to do until the very last part of this story, despite cameos in most of the earlier issues. But just like uh, Harvey Dent, you know, this is definitely Chekhov's flying tots. Like, we know something bad is going to happen here. Oh, from the beginning, every time Dick, who's, you know, visiting the circus and seeing them, sees them, he gets these feelings of deja vu and these feelings of dread. And it's like, oh, you're just building up to the moment when the Todds die horribly. And Jason doesn't have a ton of personality here. He's just sort of there as window dressing and as a plot device, as, you know, okay, we know that Dick can't be around because he's over with the Titans all the time now. He's gotten too old, so Batman needs a new teen sidekick. So, hey, here we go. How long after this story is Crisis? This is 83. Crisis is... A couple years. Crisis runs 85 to 86. So Jason is this version of Jason for a couple of years. I mean, what are we? These issues are Batman here ends at 359. So he actually, it's three years and change because the last. The last technical appearance of this Jason in Batman is Batman 400. So he's this version of Jason for 41 issues. That's a lot. And a lot of it is very Jason-centric. I can understand why the people were ready to kill him off. Because we get this whole long story with a villainess Nocturna who wants to adopt him away from Bruce as an in to get into Bruce's life. And it's this plot that runs for what feels like a really long time. This is a period where my reading is a little spottier. This is the first time I read this story. My run of reading Batman consecutively begins at 390. And I've read a lot of the stuff in the earlier 300s, but 
for physical issues, the first part of this has been a wall book, has been a pricier issue because it's the for a long time, it's the first appearance of Jason Todd. So that's about what 500 issues for you? Yeah, that's not you know, when I started reading, that's I've got a pure back issue run from that point from 390 up. And I've got a lot of the stuff again in the the middle area there into the 300s. But I would want to say my goal is to have every issue of Batman, but we know that's not going to happen. Well, no, we're going to read every issue of Batman for the show. We are, but I'm going to have to read many of them digitally. (laughs) Oh, oh, clearly. Or in trade. I mean, yeah, I would love to own every one, but that is not going to happen. (laughs) Well, I mean, what you could do uh, is just run for Congress. Like uh, Representative Garcia has shown us, you know, you uh, you get access to a lot of comics there in the Library of Congress. That is true. So this story really focuses a lot on Croc. This is a good Croc. This is a great Croc. I don't need to be told five times that he grew up wrestling alligators. Oh, every issue. Every, every issue. issue. He talks yeah. about being in a freak show and wrestling out crocodiles. This is this is what they did in lieu of recap pages, which they don't do anymore. Every issue, just in the dialogue, they give you a recap of what came before, uh, a recap and little editor's notes. Now it's just like uh, we'll just we're just going to jump in wherever we are at the story. So I, I did not need that continual uh, or continuous reference, but. This is a thinking croc. This is a croc who is not a cannibal, which is nice. This is a croc with a little bit of a backstory who's got a chip on his shoulder about it. And in most of these six issues, he is still recognizably human. He wears people clothes. He uses people implements to kill. So I think this is really good work and this is this is a croc who is not content to just live in the sewers this is a croc who wants to run uh the gotham underworld and like good for him he should have goals yeah and it makes sense he is a much more interesting character we don't start seeing croc's devolution for a while probably Around Nightfall, a little before Nightfall, when Bane nearly beats him to death. But even then, it's it's a psychological thing. It's not he becomes a monster. It's that he's never been beaten like that before. And it pushes buttons. This is a croc in many ways that seems more like Bane. Yes. This croc has layers that a lot of Crocs don't. And you got to wonder what would have happened if they hadn't decided to make him the sewer-dwelling cannibal killer. Yeah. But that Croc fills a niche that didn't exist in any other villain. Here he's just a freaky mobster, which there are other villains who are freakish mobsters. However, See, Great Shark. Yep. However, there aren't any other of the freakish mobsters who are a physical threat to Batman. And that's the thing that we get here. This is a a villain who, while not 
fully meta is slightly enhanced by this condition and thus is a level of physical threat that Batman does not normally run into at this point in his career. Yeah, and you don't have to go very far to get to him being a threat. Like, he's got really, really tough skin. Uh, he's big. He's strong. That that sounds kind of like an imposing threat. And he's clever. He is manipulative. He plays various people and various factions here, but he's not so clever either because he is headstrong and a smarter opponent is able to play him as well. This starts with another character running the Gotham mob. A Oh, why have we not talked about the squid before, Matt? Oh, the squid. Fucking Elmer Fudd squid. Be wowie, wowie, quiet. I'm hunting Batman. <laughs> <laughs> I'm climbing here. Yeah. I am rarely as glad to see a villain get assassinated than that particularly irritating villain. I thought as I was reading this, oh, this is going to be a ventriloquist story or something. What's this? And then it's just a guy called the squid with some kind of speech impediment. And he gets killed by Croc because he called Croc a name. Croc has this sort of Marty McFly, you know, you called me yellow sort of thing going where if anybody slights him in any way that he views being slighted, he sort of flies off the handle and decides to kill them and calls them a loser over and over again. Well, to be clear, Squid was a loser. Oh, yeah. Squid was. But Batman is a loser. Falco, the head of the Gotham mob, is a loser. Everybody's a loser. Oh, that that's another interesting thing about this croc. He's like sneaking around and doing the old costume switcheroo with, on people. He breaks into the jail to kill Falco. And he really does a number on him. Like he hacks him to death. And I'm like, that's that's pretty interesting there. And Croc spends a good chunk of the story in the ultimate disguise of a comic book character, a trench coat and fedora. Well, yeah. Look, if it's good enough for the Ninja Turtles, it's good enough for Killer Croc. And the thing. Somehow people can't recognize the thing when he's in a trench coat and fedora, despite it being eight feet tall and made of rock. So, uh, you know, six foot ten crocodile man easily can disguise himself. See, now that you bring up the thing, I, I want to recommend to you and uh, all the listeners out there, Norm MacDonald had a comedy album of, like, sketches. Like, it was audio sketch comedy. And the album is called uh, Ridiculous. And he had a, he had a sketch on there uh, about Reed Richards and the naming of the Fantastic Four. And it's like, all right, uh, you're gonna you're gonna be the the thing because you're a rock like thing of a man, and and uh, and you're gonna be the the Human Torch because you're on fire, and and I'm gonna be Mister Fantastic because I'm fantastic. I, I can't take credit for this. I can't remember where I saw it, but it shows that Reed Richards does not know how to read a room. And uh, therein lies the comedy. It's uh, it's a good mm-hmm. bit. Yeah, and this is en- enough of a. Dick Grayson knockoff origin that Croc 
initially is running protection on the circus. And I think that at least there, there might have been kind of a fake that you're expecting the exact Dick Grayson origin to play out since Croc is running protection on the circus. But no, the Todds get involved in the tracking of Croc and then he feeds them to his alligators. Yeah, because Batman and Robin ask the Todds to help out and the Todds are like, sure, we'll help out. What, what do you need us to do? No, oh, let's just go to the scary guy's secret lair. It's, it'll be fine. And they take it like way further than they should. And there's no real explanation as to why. And then this story also gets wrapped up in the conclusion, which is an anniversary issue. The, the what is it? The uh, 500th appearance of Batman. And that becomes an oversized, overstuffed extravaganza. With a lot of villains. And again, not that 40 issues away from Batman 400, which is the next appearance of Croc, by the way. And again, is all the villains out of Arkham running a a scheme. There was Rachel Gould this time. It seems to be the Joker who got everybody out of jail. Because he doesn't want the competition. It's almost like DC is just making arbitrary decisions to try to sell more books. Never. It's art. There's no (laughs) commerce involved. Uh, Now they just have Batman Day and a, a special adult line that just exists to make more Batman stories. I love how fully fleshed out Gotham in the world of Batman feels here. We said it when we read Strange Apparitions. We said it when we read Nightmare in Crimson. We'll keep seeing it in the 90s. There's so much going on with other plot threads, with the mayor and how mobbed up he is, with Bruce's relationship with Vicky Vale and Selina and Talia and his own sort of doubts involving his relationships that aren't wrapped up in an arc, that they're continuing plot threads. We don't see that and across books. Now, let me ask you this. Do you think that's because we just don't get the same kind of tenure on books that we maybe had in this era? Uh, Chip Zdarsky, let's, let's say ballpark it. He's going to get maybe, what, 30 issues of Batman, give or take, maybe 40. Yeah, probably. But I also think... There's a mindset now of exactly that, that writers are thinking about the beginning, middle, and end of their arc. At this point, people are like, I want to write this book until they kick me off because it's a paycheck. Mm -hmm. I'm going to stick with this thing as long as I can. So they built all of these plot threads because they thought they would eventually get around to it and they would have plenty of time to play it out. They didn't have, okay, I have the beginning, the middle, and end of this uber plot. Both in um, in this story and in the other one from generally this era, it feels like there's just more to sink into here, more to grab onto. Even, even if it's not all great, it's, it's more to keep you engaged. You know, I meant to look something up, and I kind of, I'm going to quickly Google it here, because there was one moment in here that, I watched and I was like, wait, 
Croc, at one point or another, you know, he's gotten away and he goes to the Gotham's Gotham City Men's Club and he's taking a schwitz. And I, I did look it up. Crocodiles don't sweat. Now, granted, Croc is not a crocodile. He's a man with a skin condition. But still, I would wager that skin doesn't breathe. Mm. Again, maybe he's kind of cold-blooded, so the schwitz feels good. If we wanted to say he has the world's worst case of ichthyosis, dry, scaly skin, maybe he doesn't sweat. Yeah, that's kind of what I was... I was just like, why is he in a, a sauna if he doesn't sweat? But when you, you roll out the rogues in this one, there are some serious D-listers. You got Signal Man. You got Getaway Genius. You just made that one up. Oh, no, my friend. The getaway genius. The the tweeds are there, who I've always loved. Gentleman Ghost. The unfortunately named Spook. Eesh. Yeah. And we get one of the early instances of naming a Gotham locale after a creator, in that the final battle takes place at the Adams Brewery. I also want to call out, we have art, on a bunch of these by Don Newton. Newton did a lot of Batman pencils in this era and passed away shortly after these issues were released. About a year later, August of 84, young at uh, 49. Mm. But some of these are really nice looking. His croc is scary. And there's one page of Batman doing a gymnastics routine after punching through a punching bag that has some really nice, dynamic art to it. And early work from Dan Jurgens, who will go on to be well-regarded for Superman. And one issue from Kurt Swan, legendary Superman artist, who clearly was not a Batman artist because he draws a brontosaurus in the cave as opposed yes. to T-Rex. Yes. Oh, my God. How did I forget that? Yeah. That, talk about uh, a critical error. Uh, Bat, no, Batman does not have two dinosaurs in the cave. Nope. Nope. That was just Kurt Swan didn't know his Batman mythos well enough. And was, there was a dinosaur in the cave and he drew a brontosaurus. And and then you see the T-Rex later in the arc. Yep. Another the because Newton was a Batman artist. And, and the last appearance of Captain Stingery, at least pre-crisis appearance of Captain Stingery, who Mr. Freeze freezes, and who eventually shows up, I think, once post-crisis, because he's a land pirate. Darr. The last thing to call out for this, and it's because it's something that I feel like I want to mention, because it will be so much of what we see with Jason moving forward in general, and especially tonight. When Jason finds out his parents were murdered by Croc, he sees red and he just starts punching croc mercilessly so jason's temper has always been there and his red hair (laughs) which gets retconned out and grant morrison tries to bring it back in during their run on batman and robin and then nobody deals with it and the new 52 retcons it away and he's got dark hair again smart call 
Do you have anything else on this one? I don't think so. Uh, so I believe that means it's time to put in the crock on the big board. Okay. So back to the big board. We are still divisible by three. Thank with two, God. 225 stories. Uh, number one remains the post-crisis origin of Batman. Batman year one. Down at number 50 is Batman, The Vengeance of Bane, the first appearance of Bane. Coming in at a sexy 69, it's Batman and Robin, number one to three. Down at number 100 is Batman Year Three, the post-crisis origin of Dick Grayson. Down at 150, we have Batman in Bethlehem, the flash forward of Damien as Batman from Batman 666. At 200 is the Spawn Batman crossover. And hey, bringing up the bottom, it's White Knight at 225. Still a terrible book. Okay. First place to look. So Nightmare in Crimson, the monk story that was a little bit before this, about six months before this, is down at 123. I think this is this is better than that. Uh yeah, it's certainly more grounded. Uh right? I like a good grounded mob war. You really have a hard time sticking the landing trying to cram so much into that anniversary issue. But yeah, I would I would say when we're not dealing with the monk, it's it's a better story. And I think Croc is a much more interesting villain. I think if it had just been Joker playing croc there at the end because he realized croc was trying to kill batman and he's like nobody gets to kill batman but me instead of bringing in every other villain if it had just sort of been a a battle of wits between joker and croc with batman caught in the middle probably would have been a, a better story yes so it's better than 123 however it is not as good as 101 the post crisis origin of jason todd that's a that's a good point and certainly a good change. So we are working basically between 101 and 123. Yes. I do like Legends of the Dark Knight 6568 going sane and Armageddon 2001 Superman Annual number 3 108 109. I do believe I like those better than this. Yes, I was looking in that same area myself and definitely thought that this was those were better than this. But I think this is better than Gates of Gotham. Yes. All right, so 113 is Batman the Sword of Azrael, the first appearance of Azrael. Jean-Paul there is about as fully formed a character as Jason Todd is. Because they're both just sort of there to forward a story and to set up for something else. To set up more Azrael coming down the line and him becoming Batman. And to set up Jason as Robin. But there is more interesting weirdness surrounding Jean-Paul. Right? Yes. He's got the, the the programming and the the order and all of this stuff. With Jason, it's just, oh, we've we've literally seen this before. But Croc is a more interesting villain than the demon Biss, Azrael's nemesis, who's just some rich guy who gets conked on the head and decides that he is the demonic nemesis of Azrael. 
This is true. These these are all good points. But while it's off in a few places because it's so early, Casada's art on Sword of Azrael is stronger than a lot of what we get here. And that Azrael design is awesome. So if I was doing this, I would say this goes right above Gates of Gotham. But you seem to be looking a bit higher. No, no, so no, maybe no. we... I, oh. I'm just... I'm I'm thinking sort of Azrael is above this. Mm-hmm. I was comparing it to a similar story ah. in my head. So I was just looking at these two. And if we could argue out that sort of Azrael is better, then I would look a little yes. lower. Yes. So, yes, I agree. I think sort of Azrael is better. So that puts it above Gates of Gotham, which is below. Then that's two spots down below two of our better golden age stories, the first Batman and the mightiest team in the world. Yeah, I can see that. I can see this is our new 116. There we go. All right. Our next story of the night, which also in itself does not have a collective title, but I'm calling consequences. This is Batman volume one, numbers 424 and 425. The writer is Jim Starlin with pencils by Mark Bright. Inks by Steve Mitchell, colors by Adrian Roy, letters by John Costanza, and edited by Denny O'Neill and Dan Raspler. The cover dates are October to November of 1988. A scream from a penthouse window begins a case that will test Jason Todd, showing him that not all crimes can be wrapped up neatly, and that not all innocents can be saved. And when he crosses a line, can Batman shield him from the consequences of his actions? Mmm. This is uh, Consequences as brought to you by Die Hard Batteries. Yes. Joke joke I did last time because I accidentally read 425. In all fairness, that was my fault because I had put Death in the Family starting in 425, not 426. But Matt, you moron. You idiot. You fuck up. I know. You you imposter. You got to remember, my low self-esteem, that... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, oh no no i, kid, I take I, it back i kid because i love i get but, this this guy's doing all of this shit for memory i like do not as i've said before do not fuck on that he does know what he's talking about i'm here i'm just here for shits and giggles i i read these things and i have occasionally a good take i know nothing matt isn't a batman savant as I, you could tell from what I just said, this is the last story before a death in the family. This is the story that sets the stage for a death in the family and has two things in common with death in the family. Uh, is one of them diplomatic community? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> it absolutely is. They are a fascination with diplomatic community and an attempt to to negotiate some modern politics in the story. Only here they're using a completely fictional nation as opposed to actually using Iran. Uh, Well, it's barely fictionalized. Like what? What's the name of it? Uh, It's like Bogota. Bogota or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Instead of uh, Bogota. Yeah. Oh, it's Colombia. I mean, it, it is absolutely Colombia. Yeah. Uh, but I love how you get basically these bookends around Jason Todd's death. It's like uh, diplomatic immunity, the Jason Todd story. Yeah. The first time I read this story, I was 
10 or 11 years old, did not get a lot of the nuance going on here, especially in the first part. I am shocked at what DC editorial let Starlin do in that first story. Could we actually see that story now? Probably you wouldn't use the diplomatic immunity angle. You would probably go with entitled rich kid, pharma bro kind of angle. But would DC let that fly in its main Batman titles now? Well, as we saw with the Batman, right? We can't even do real drugs anymore, right? It has to be a fictionalized, defanged, step removed from something like cocaine if it was marijuana it wouldn't be taken seriously and you know that would be reefer madness hilarity uh but batman would not be waging war on cocaine or meth that seems entirely too serious now it's not even the the war on drug stuff so the the setup of this particular story is that Batman and Jason have run afoul of the son of a diplomat from this fictionalized version of Columbia, who has abducted and committed sexual assault on a young woman. And the government can't do anything about it because he has diplomatic immunity. Now now I see where you were going with that. Yeah, I, I do agree. And she is so tormented to the point where she kills herself. And you see that on page. And no, I do not think we would do that today. Yeah, the the, the war on drug stuff was less. it It was dealing with Gloria that I cannot imagine we would see that. And A, it's a fridging. Let's be completely upfront. This is a character who's created to motivate Jason Todd to cross a line. But... It is not handled indelicately, or it is handled indelicately, but indelicately in a real way. There is no victim blaming. Her motivation for not going to the police after it happened the first time was because she was ashamed, which is a common reaction to sexual assaults. I I will say one just one issue with the idea of victim blaming and this this was a word that that struck me in, in sort of the wrong way and this is in the recap in the second issue gloria opted for a foolish and very permanent way out foolish there that's the wrong word yes yeah i, I thought bruce was being overly harsh especially because she had just been threatened by someone who had sexually assaulted her twice before and had gotten away with it over and over again. But I was shocked at, for 1988, that this was being done in a code-approved book. And her death is fairly graphic. They find her hung, and it's harsh. And there is rarely a character, you read more, that when Philippe, meets his fate Uh, gotta say didn't feel too bad about that what do you want me to do he slept yeah because that's in the end again if you haven't read the story philippe is on a balcony and 
You see Jason land on the balcony. And the next thing you see is him fully falling to his death. You don't see what happened. And when Batman asks, did he stumble or did you push him? Jason says, I guess he got spooked and slipped. And the story and the second part never answer the question of whether or not Jason pushed him. And I think that's that is left to the reader's imagination. I it's like a, the ambiguity there. Yeah. I think Starlin did a really good job leaving that because, you know, if Jason pushed him, he couldn't be Robin anymore. But this guy was so Garzonis, Philippe Garzonis was so reprehensible. And the fact that he was going to get away with it and there was nothing they could do. You know, they caught him with cocaine as part of the trafficking. So he was going to be recalled or deported back to his country but he was not going to suffer for driving this young woman to suicide oh i'll say one thing about the the politics here i think they got that a little bit wrong because they say his father's a diplomat and then his father is also in the drug trade and you don't typically mix those two like uh, and they also present an ambassador as somebody with a great deal of power. I mean, at least in the American system, they are throwaway appointees. They are political largesse. It's not somebody with a great deal of power and authority. Yes, over their over their mission, uh, over their station, sure, but uh, a diplomat and an ambassador is typically not a big mover and shaker in government. One of my favorite weird historical facts, uh, the man who assassinated President James Garfield, Charles J. Gateau, was a complete wacko who sent Garfield a draft of a speech to deliver unasked and believed that by giving him this speech, it had helped guarantee his win. And so Godot would be made ambassador to France when not given the ambassadorship, he assassinated the president. Of course. And um, I have American dad to thank for, uh, for knowing who assassinated Garfield. I have the uh, Stephen Sondheim musical assassins, which I now know all about all the different assassins. But that is neither here nor there, uh, because we still have the second part of this story, which if the first part was this sort of very serious tale of manipulation and pain, the second one is friggin 80s action movie. Oh, yeah. All the way. Big ass set piece in a junkyard. Good stuff. Yeah, it's Batman and by the way, in both the first story and this one, Jason Todd hides in the trunk of the Batmobile at one point or another. Because he gets to the final confrontation with Croc in the trunk of the Batmobile at the end of the first story. And here, when Batman is going to go and try to deal with Gordonis' father, who has called him out after kidnapping Jim Gordon, Jason hides in the trunk again. Little shit. But yeah, this one does feature, as as Will has mentioned, the diehard Batman hucking a battery at a guy, which is a panel made famous by comic book journalist and writer Chris Sims, one of the most notable internet Batman fans and scholars, who cites that as 
one of, if not his completely favorite Batman sequence of all time. But I mean, you get Batman basically dieharding his way through this junkyard, taking out Garzonis's men one or two by two, but in steps as he goes. While Jason is also sneaking around, even though he was not told to come along. There's not a lot to discuss in the second story because it, it is just a big action piece. But it's the one where the title Consequences comes in because Jason never knows who is the guy who has called him here. He never realizes that this is uh, Jose Garzonas, father of Philippe. In the end, he actually asks, who's the old guy with the Uzi? And Bruce has to tell him he was a father and he does address it as righteous anger. And I mean, uh, again, the question is, did Jason push his kid? Because if he didn't and he did accidentally fall and because he was the scummiest of scumbags, I, I don't know exactly how righteous that anger is, but you see the consequences. Multiple of these guys die in the crossfire. Gozonis himself is crushed under toppled cars. Jim is winged by a bullet. There's a lot of collateral damage here. And when Bruce confronts Jason about, you know, the consequences, Jason just turns and walks away. And it's all captured on this last page. No text on the page at all. It's just nine panels that show dead bad guys and Bruce's stern look and Jason Todd just walking away. Like it's, it's a really nicely done page and sets you up perfectly going into death in the family with a Robin who has these anger issues, who doesn't listen to Batman and is going to suffer consequences. I I just can't understand like 424, 425, such serious stories. And then death in the family fucking lunacy. Because even though 425 is an action piece there, it is grounded in Garzonis's rage at the death of his son. And it, it's a big action story, but it's never over the top. It's not ICBMs and Iranian diplomacy and Lady Shiva. Like death, the family would have been so much better as it has just basically been retconned in everybody's head. If Joker had just beaten Todd to death and if there hadn't been this whole weird side plot with his mother. And of course, if there also hadn't been Joker becoming the Iranian ambassador to the UN. I mean, you can still do the mother thing. I think that it can be a less contrived connection between Jason's mother and Joker. Uh, Yes. But death in the family is just like Jim Starlin is kind of like, Hey, I want to do stuff about politics right now. So we're going to go and we're going to go to Ethiopia and we're going to go to Iran and we're going to do all this stuff. And it's so weird, but you know, for a nuclear physicist, the Joker makes a good homicidal maniac. Uh, that he does. I do not believe it has ever been done. And I, I sit back and like in the back of my head, part of me thinks there might've been something, but I don't think so. I'm glad there was never a Die Hard 2 on this where Gerzonis's uncle, the original Gerzonis's uncle, the brother of 
the ambassador comes to exact revenge on Batman for the death of his brother and nephew. This would have been a diminishing return situation if we kept coming back to it. Yeah. How many Grubers are there to kill? Exactly. So this ending the way it does with a finality was a good choice. Yes, absolutely. And I think that that probably wraps this up. Uh, that means it's time for Batman 424, 425 consequences on the big board. First, is this better or worse than the post-crisis origin of Jason Todd at 101? You know, this manages to be serious without being grim dark and i can't exactly explain how or why but it's an adult story even if it has some rough spots and i appreciate that uh it's good action this is really some some good some good batman so i will say I believe this goes higher because we did get some goofy stuff in that story with what is it? Ma, whatever. uh, Yeah. And Harvey at some of his most two centric, like having to slide into second base. That was a weird choice. Yes. So if it's above 101, I do not think it is better as goofy as it is. Then 77, where were you the night Batman was killed? Because that is just charming as hell. Yes. 84 is Cold Case. This is that story where someone is accusing Thomas Wayne of being the Gotham City Ripper. It has some seriousness to it. It is got some weirdness to it as well. Hmm. This is a hard one to place. This is a hard one to place. It has real emotional heft and impact, especially that first part. And the fact that it does all of this in two issues. Do you know how long this a story, if they could do this story today, do you know how long this thing would be? 13. Yeah, we would spend months tracking Garzonis. And it wouldn't just be... Him and one person, he would be involved in trafficking and it would be this massive undertaking as opposed to it being this really intimate little story and him not being a master criminal. Nowadays, if this were done, he would be this sort of master in charge of this whole like drugs and women operation. Here, he's just a spoiled, rich little shit. And uh, we'd we'd see Gordon being abducted and probably beaten. And we'd see like some other guy come after Batman at the behest of Garzonas. And it would be a lot. Yes. Uh, My gut says cold case is better, but I can't I can't really support that with anything. No, I agree. I really like cold case. And I think it also has some it has emotion to it. Because of Bruce sort of reckoning with his father's legacy. And there there is still something about a cishet early middle-aged white man writing a story about sexual assault that always, as well-intentioned as it might be, 
makes me sit back and go, I wonder if this could have used a sensitivity pass from someone. Even if I'm not picking up anything that makes me cringe, I wonder if there is something here that I'm just not seeing because I am not a person who has had to deal with that experience. Yes. And this was 1988. There was no such thing as sensitivity readers in 1988. No. So if I had to just pick a spot, I would say 92. Below Doomsday Book, above Fear for Sale. But that's, I'm just, I'm just throwing that out there. So so you're putting the story right before Jason Todd's death, above the story where Batman's greatest fear is Jason Todd's death. Yeah. You know, I'm okay with that. We'll, we'll we'll split we'll finally split the two Bar Davis stories and we'll put consequences in as our new 92. And now we get to a story that didn't need to be told. The the Darth Vader story of the night. Oh, and I didn't even give you the worst of it. Because our final story of the night is Daedalus and Icarus, the return of Jason Todd. This is Batman Volume 1, Annual 25. The writer is Judd Winnick with Jim Starlin. Pencils by Shane Davis with Jim Aparo. Inks by Mark Morales with Mike DiCarlo. Colors by Alex Sinclair. Letters by Travis Lanham. And edited by Brenda Montclair and Bob Shrek. The cover date is May of 2006. For the first time, find out the secret of how Jason Todd returned from the dead. Pass. There's a lot squeezed into one comic that is so elaborate. And this is one of the very few things that the new 52 absolutely made better. Because this resurrection of Jason Todd... It it, it midichlorianed all over itself, Matt. This came out right before the one year later jump. This took place right around the time of Infinite Crisis. So everything was tying into this event, which is where we get Jason Todd's resurrection because Superboy Prime, trapped in his Crystal Heaven prison, was punching the walls and creating ripples in the timeline that resurrected Jason Todd. You know, I'm starting to think that these various uh, crises were all bad. Just all of them. We will read them at some point because all of them feature Batman in one capacity or another. And I will say that many of them are messy. They're just bad, Matt. They're just bad. Well, that particular element of this, the Superboy Prime punching reality and creating ripples in the timeline, is, I know I, I quoted this on a podcast record. I can't remember if it was a Bat Chat or a WMQ or what. But that, to quote the great detective Benoit Blanc, is just dumb. That's just dumb. The New 52 streamlined this by just saying, hey, Raish and Talia dug up Jason and dumped him in a Lazarus pit. Ta-da! And we get a little of that here, too. But we cut out the middleman of Superboy Prime punching reality and just have Jason resurrected by Talia. It's... And the idea that he's going to wake up in a coffin and then have to claw his way out and struggle into a hospital and they're going to look at him as like, oh, he's got a 
skull fracture and he was buried but now he's alive and then he wanders the streets and oh but then he was comatose for a bit and then he wakes up and gets out and then he he's in this confrontation with a street tough and then he remembers and uh but he's still just kind of a, a jumbled mess in his head and so that's why talia picks him up and decides to dump him in the lazarus i mean jesus this is good again just the the comic is competently made there is nothing offensive with the comic in terms of its creation aside from the narration which is overwrought and badly written but this is a good execution of just a terrible story and there's a six issue miniseries called red hood the lost days that expands it no all of the training that jason does after he's dumped in the Lazarus pit. Yeah, there's a six-issue miniseries that details all that. No. Oh, yes. No. Oh, yes. But there is no Batman in it, so we do not have to cover it. I'm not gonna. But I will raise you there is an aspect of this story that offended me. Okay, go for it. After Jason has been dumped in the Lazarus pit and pulled out and Raish is both suffering from pit madness and kind of furious that Talia disobeyed him and dumped Jason in the Lazarus pit. Talia leads Jason out of Raish's manse, gives him a go bag, and then pushes him into the ocean for him to escape. But in the process, she grabs him and kisses him. Mm. It has been established that at this point, three to four years have passed. I can't remember if it's three or four, one year later. So Jason is of age. Jason is probably 19 or 20. But Talia is a woman in her mid to late 30s who has had intimate relations with Jason's father and who has had no relationship with Jason other than being his caretaker for the past two to three years as he has been mostly catatonic and just working off of muscle memory. That kiss does not need to be there. There's no reason for that kiss to happen. I don't know why that kiss was there. It bothered me to no end that that kiss was there. Another exceptionally strange thing that this comic does is that it gives us this idea that, oh, in the good timeline, Jason Todd lived. And the one page where Bruce, like, he's alive is the alternate page from the third part of Death in the Family. Because Aparo drew both Jason Dies and Jason Lives. So they actually took the page of unused art and inserted it, which is why there is a credit the credit, Stalin yeah. and Aparo and DiCarlo. Just such a bizarre little aside. And I could not dig this up. And I'm going to give one more attempt. As Matt is still looking, I'll say this. I learned a thing. Jason Todd's middle name is Peter. Okay, This is going to be weird, but in the collection of Infinite Crisis, there was a bunch of endnotes. And I believe... In those endnotes that I was not able to find, 
but now have found, thanks to DC Universe Infinite, even though it is not easy to... There's not a, you know, search function here. So I am trying to scan them. The Superboy Prime punching reality was not going to be the original explanation for Jason's return. It it did not occur to me until, you know, we were recording that, oh, wait, I bet that the trade is on infinite with my upper tier access and it is and those end notes uh, i cannot find it but i'm fairly certain somewhere in those end notes the original plan for the explanation for jason's return was that he was a multiversal jason todd dropped into the main continuity that he was much better a jason who'd been trained by deathstroke or an alternate universe's Deathstroke, where he had been Deathstroke's Robin for all intents and purposes. Much better. It's one of those things where I'm like, boy, I might be making this up because I think it's a better idea. But I tried to Google it and I couldn't find it. And then I went through all of the kind of eyeballing these endnotes as I bounced through and I'm not seeing it. But... Yeah, I thought that would have been a really cool explanation that Jason was now an orphan of some other reality where he had been the evil Robin of Deathstroke and now was stuck in this reality. So, hey, let's let's run with it. Yeah. Why? Why not just do that instead of all of this just nonsense? I couldn't tell you. It, it is a really weirdly complicated version of this story. And, I mean, you know, you see all this stuff with Jason, but he's not an active participant in the story until the very end because he's in a near vegetative state for so much of the story. But as you said, it is a competently done comic. It's not a bad comic. It's just not a terribly necessary comic. And it could have just been dealt with in a couple sentences. But people were really into Red Hood at this particular point. So, hey, we have an annual coming up. Let's do an entire long, elaborate story as to why Red Hood is back. And, of course, Hush has to make an appearance just to just really drive home the point that this is this is not good. And not a fan of that reveal either, that that was really Jason in parts of Hush. Still do not like that to this day. I don't have a lot more to say on this. Just there are a few books that I would say your time is better spent not reading this. Because at least some of these books are so terrible, like you could get a good glimpse at, hey, this is not how comic books should be made. And yet this is being made. This is just a bizarre thing that exists. It's it's worth it for just shits and giggles and being able to lament at how bad it is. Like I would recommend someone read White Knight over reading this. Dan and my good friend, Rob Lynch, you you did a 
uh, Three Amigos episode where Rob was on too, didn't you, Will? Yeah. Rob has a, a tenet. The greatest sin a piece of art can have is not being bad. It's being boring. Mm. Because a bad piece of art, you can be engaged by that in a certain way. Something that's just there is not engaging. It's it's the difference between uh, Star Trek Insurrection and uh, Into Darkness. Oh, yeah. Insurrection is most assuredly just there. But, yeah, I, I think that about does it here. Uh, that means it's time for Batman Annual number 25 on the big board. So this is down low. Yeah, 200s? Probably? Question mark? Okay, things start getting offensive at 206-ish. Yeah. Hardcore offensive, offensive to every and utter, every and all utter sensibilities is 219 down. Between 204 and 218, some of those stories are there because they're kind of offensive. Some of them are there because they're super dull. Some are there because they're both. Yeah. This doesn't fall in that lowest of echelon, the 219 to 227. Like, oh my God, what were they thinking when they wrote this story? Yeah. Um, I mean, this this stacks up, I think, pretty nicely to spawn Batman at 202. <laughs> I was looking right around there because I would read this again before I read 204, The Arrow and the Bat, that ponderously long Legends of the Dark Knight Batman Green Arrow story that also has some weird Asian stereotyping in there. I gotta say, if this had somehow included that miniseries, my goodness, this would be very, very low. Yes, because it is in, that would have made it incredibly. It would have been six, seven issues of Jason Todd's Return from the Dead in a story that something that could have been handled in five pages. And hey, Talia and Ray dump Jason in the Lazarus pit. Jason's alive. Because they figured it would be a good way to fuck with Batman. <laughs> yep. There you go. So then if we, we were thinking it's above 204, the only thing then in between Spawn Batman and that is Scarecrow the Master of Fear, the origin of the Scarecrow annual. Uh, you know my affinity for that one. Yeah, I actually think I would put this below that. So... Batman Annual 25 is our new 204. Good deal. Annuals, man, they are hit and miss. They really are. And there are some great ones. We will get to some great ones. Hey, we got we got an annual in the top 10. We do. And there's, there's other, I mean, I think I want to do both annuals three and four from that run. I cannot wait to do Batman Annual 14, The Eye of the Beholder, the post-crisis, the first post-crisis origin of Two-Face. But yeah, they're uh, they're big swings, and you take a big swing, and sometimes you miss real Very bad. True. But hey, that does it for tonight. Next week, Josh Wheel returns for three of the line wide DC crossovers of the nineties. Gonna get one of those crises, Will. <sighs> we'll see. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers: Dan Grote, June Conduit of Outdated Joke Names. Jen, come on. Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum, 
Asimov fangirl, Tony Thornley, Sam Sam Hopper, John Wickham, Robert Secundus. Bye, two bucks. Can't wait to have you back on the show. (laughs) Tim Rooney and Giorgio Sergioli for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon, where you can get shoutouts, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLast1013. And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat roundup of new Bat books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.